I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, April 18th, 2011. Boy, those weekends sure do go by quick, don't they? (laughs) I don't even remember having one. Then again, I can hide my own Easter eggs, so, you know. Damn. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and, uh, well, we do the politically incorrect thing, and that is, is that we take what people say— that God's about what he's like, what he expects from us, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we open up our Bibles and we go, yep, that checks out, or more often than not, yeah, no, that's not what the Bible says at all. And uh, the reason why is because we are told to beware by none other than Jesus Christ himself, to beware of false prophets, false teachers, false Christ, those teaching false doctrine. Yeah, the, the the Bible, the New Testament in particular, warns us on so many occasions against this that uh, you'd have to, well, be pretty thick to miss it. And uh, and so it always amazes me when I, I'm the one being accused of being unloving. <laughs> yes, you're so unloving, Chris. You know, you're just unkind, and I'm... Yeah, listen, I call me unloving and unkind if you want, but you're not dealing with a biblical definition of love or kindness. I don't want people going to hell. I don't think that's I don't think that Bible twisting is one of those things that falls into the greater category known as Christian liberty. 
No, instead, this is one of those things where if you if you got a teacher who ain't pointing you to Christ, is chronically uh, twisting the scriptures and mangling stuff and teaching doctrine that not only can't be found in the clear teachings of the New Testament, uh, but uh, you can't even find anywhere in church history where this stuff has been taught and viewed favor- favorably, well, then you've got a problem. You're probably not in a church. Yeah, you might be in uh, what uh, Jesus refers to in the book of Revelation as a synagogue de satana, otherwise known as synagogue of Satan. So you got to be careful. There is such a thing. So, um, yeah, it's politically incorrect. I don't – This, in fact, listening to this program, uh, I don't ever, ever expect that uh, the archived editions of Fighting for the Faith will ever be used at one of those Dale Carnegie uh, conferences on how to win friends and influence people. Just, yeah, I just don't <laughs> – I don't see that happening. Do you see that happening? I just – I don't see that happening. <sighs> anyway, uh, we're <laughs> we're off to a great start this week. I, I'm looking at the, the list today, and I, I – before I started playing the music, I actually decided to narrow it down. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm up against such a time crunch that it isn't until – uh, the opening uh, opening music to the program starts. I sit there and go, yeah, I've got, <laughs> I got to narrow this list down. So I was diligent today. I I feel so organized. I mean, I I don't even know what to make of this. I mean, <laughs> normally it's Mach five, hair on fire, major procrastination, too many things I'm trying to work on all at once, and then all of a sudden this the program is here and it's like uh, you got to figure out what to do. Now today <laughs> I was organized. Yes, all right, I've. Narrowed it down uh, all before I ever got on the air. I wasn't uh, trying to figure out what to do at the last second, which is not like me at all. But then again, I had one of those uh, weekends where I, oh, man, <laughs> studying, studying, studying. Um, Yeah, I I spend a lot of time reading, and I, I, um, I, I am ridiculously slow when I read a book. And um, and the, the the reason I'm so ridiculously slow when I read a book is because so many times I don't care what the person is saying. I want to know where they got the idea from. I, I work from the the basic premise that uh, that doctrines, theology, thoughts, different points of view. Uh, because there's really nothing new under the sun. So many times, uh, if you have somebody proclaiming something in the name of God. Uh, you know, many times they've got this idea, sometimes not from Scripture. Um, it's either Scripture or somebody else. And so ideas have grandparents, and uh, they have parents and grandparents. And so I uh, constantly, 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 uh, when I read a book, I spend almost more time in the footnotes than I do in the text itself. I know that sounds kind of silly, like you can do that, but the I, I do. <laughs> I... You know, and so I find the greatest stuff that way. I have, I just find the best stuff ever. In fact, uh, I was reveling, just reveling this morning because I was chasing down a footnote and came across uh, some old books from the 1850s that are in the public domain uh, that were put together by a solid confessional Lutheran uh, who was living in Berlin in the mid uh, in the middle part of the 19th century, and his books his his works were published prior to Darwin, and uh, you know I and uh, the, the, that's an important thing. The the reason why is because when the Origin of the Species gets published in the middle part of the um, of the uh, 18 uh, 19th century. 
many Christians lose their their nerve, and uh, that's when you can you can see that Christianity steers into mystical romanticism. And uh, then you begin to see the clear rise of modernist rationalism within the church and things like that. So I love it when I can get a hold of something that comes up to that point but doesn't really cross over it. And, uh, and uh, wow, this is great stuff. Just uh, it, Anyway, the, he's, we're talking four or five volumes of the Christology of the Old Testament. <laughs> it's, and it's thick and it's rich and it's just i mean it's it's like book by book chapter by chapter pointing out jesus christ in the text of the old testament and it's done by an old dead lutheran uh a confessional lutheran uh, who who had to have his works translated from german into english and oh man i mean that's like finding pure gold. I can't. I can't wait to dig into this stuff and and uh, hopefully be able to bring some of it to you. I this is one of the things I love doing, is finding old ideas, finding old thoughts, and reworking them in in light of our current postmodern context. Uh, but you know the the one thing that's wonderful about these guys, wonderful, is that each and every one of these theologians that I find who were who was they they are they have not been influenced by post-modernity at all they they're they're safely in the presence of the lord their bodies are are awaiting jesus christ's return in glory when he will call out their name and they will rise from the dead <laughs> oh man anyway so these guys i mean they're compl- they're not influenced by this stuff at all and so the, the the spirit that they write in the 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 certainty that they have of uh, the stuff that they put forward, you can tell that it's not tainted. There's there's no trepidation. There's no tainting. Uh, there's no trepidation on their part to bring this stuff forward a, a, at all because uh, the modernist, rationalist, liberal uh, wing of Christianity hadn't really fully. It may have hatched by then, but it hadn't really grown up. You know, the, the bird that laid it. Um, well, actually, the serpent that laid that egg. Um, you know, late at a, you know in the uh, in the Enlightenment period, but it hadn't fully uh, matured up to that point. And so, anyway, does that sound nerdy? Um, yeah, it probably sounds nerdy. Um, but boy, am I excited about it! <laughs> so anyway, I'll keep you posted. So uh, you know, and uh, it, gotta love Google Books. Gotta love Google Books. Um, you know, because so much of the great theological stuff that's out there, so much of it. Uh, that was, you know, that's, you know, from the uh, early part of the 20th century and uh, on into the uh, into the 19th century, when there was still a high, mo- uh, there was still a high watermark in good Christian scholarship, biblical scholarship, that wasn't tainted with this stuff. Boy, there's, all those books are available in the public domain, and if you know what to look for, yeah, then you can, uh, then you can, uh, you know, you can find these things. Anyway, I, so that's. Uh, how I spent my <laughs> how I spent my weekend. Yeah, I know some of you went to the ball game and stuff like that. But see, I live in Indianapolis, and we don't have a we don't have a a major league team here. We have we have a farm team for one of the major league teams. Anyway, maybe I shouldn't stop trying to <clears throat> make excuses for being a nerd. So there, yeah, there you go. Uh, but here's the good news: is is that because I'm a nerd, I'm your nerd. <laughs> That's right. I'm a nerd for you guys. I do I do this nerdy stuff for you. I do this because I know that this will help you out. And, and anyway, 
you want to talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith? I think I should change the subject. Okay, moving along. <laughs> Today we're going to uh, we're going to begin our program by um, oh man, y'all ever heard of Simka Yakubovich? Um, yeah, this is somebody I have like zero respect for. And uh, Simka Yakubovich, he, he was one of the guys who was working with James Cameron. You know, was it three, four years ago? You know, coming out with that uh, the lost tomb of Jesus. Yeah, well, apparently now he's claiming that he's found the nails that were used to crucify Jesus. And so we're going to listen to the CNN News report on that, and uh, I'll also probably read the Christian Post story on it, because both are worth passing along. We'll take a look at that. Oh, oh, and <laughs> oh boy. <sighs> um, let, let me see if I can find out who my Facebook friend here is that did this. One of my friends, uh, one of my friends on Facebook, although that's kind of a weird way of putting it. Uh, I should say one of the listeners who posted on my Facebook wall. Um, you know, because yeah, when you think about friends on Facebook and that's how you're defining it as somebody who's a friend on Facebook, uh, um, it kind of redefines friendship. But uh, somebody I have never met, but uh, his name is Brandon Biggs. And uh, he does a podcast uh, by the name of AG Voice, and that stands for the Assembly of God, agvoice.org, agvoice.org. And uh, he tipped me off to a recent interview that uh, Rick Warren did with the Assemblies of God superintendent. And uh, Yowzer, um, yeah, the, um, George Wood is his name, by the way. And I'm not going to play the whole thing because so much of it is uh, standard uh, Rick Warren, Pablum, and stuff like that. But I thought this uh, – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to – I'll probably come back to this later this week. But uh, one of the things I want to pass on to you is do you know where Rick Warren got the idea for his campaigns? You know, his 40 Days of Purpose campaign, his uh, 40 Days of Community campaign, his 40 Days of Love <clears> – <throat> hang on, I didn't say that right. The 40 Days of Love. The 40 Days of Love campaign. Um, you know, all these different campaigns. Do you know where he got that information, where he got the idea from? Well, <laughs> you ain't going to believe it, so I'm not going to tell you. So I, what I'm going to do here is, uh, you know, before we go to the break, I'll play for you Rick Warren explaining for himself where he got the idea <laughs> for the campaigns. And you're going to just be scratching your head going, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. It's it's true. And then let's see here. Uh, coming out of the first break, um, got a, a story I want to uh, read. Uh, burning the Quran is not the right way to confront radical Islam. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on this idea that uh, uh, Pastor Terry Jones down in Florida. Um, the question is, how should we uh, how should we as Christians look at what he's up to? And what really is the biblical way of uh, of well, kind of responding to the errors that uh, Terry Jones is involved in? And I'll explain that when we get there. And if you want to open up your Bibles now, the relevant text that I'll be looking at as we provide a little bit of biblical analysis of Terry Jones's action is Acts chapter nineteen, verses eight through forty one. Acts chapter nineteen, verses eight through forty one. If you want to uh, find your, get your Bible and mark that, I'm going to be spending a little bit of time. There there today, and uh, and then I'm going to be reading an Albert Muller op-ed piece entitled "A Massive Shift Coming and What It Means to Be a Christian?" Question mark. It was a question mark by Albert Muller. So he, he's responding to the uh, the recently published article put out in Time Magazine, you know, regarding Rob Bell and and his challenges. So anyway, with that, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to dive into the program proper. 
From the Christian Post, and uh, they're kind of relaying a story from CNN. Headline reads, Nails used to crucify Jesus found? Question mark. Yeah, that's the uh, question mark. Uh, uh, the um, <clears throat> filmmaker Simka Yakubovich, by the way, this is written by Ariel R. Ray, who is a Christian Post contributor. Filmmaker Simka Yakubovich claims to have found the original y- nails used to crucify <sighs> Jesus. This is the same guy who, by the way, a couple of, you know, three, four, five years ago, claimed to have found the lost tomb of Jesus. And um, the the reality is, is that when you took the evidence that Simka Yakabovich put forward uh, for um, the so-called lost tomb of Jesus being found, as soon as you uh, applied any kind of good scholastic scrutiny to that, the whole thing came crumbling down like a house of cards. In fact, um, some of the guys quoted in you know the, some of the scholars that he um, recruited for his special on the lost tomb of Jesus, they've since defected from Simka Yakubovich, and and uh, and the reason being is because they couldn't maintain any scholastic or academic credibility, and uh, and continue to toe the Simka Yakubovich line that he had discovered the lost tomb of Jesus. So this is the guy who's at the. Um, uh, let's say the heart of this particular um, story, and uh, so that being said, you ha- um, how's the saying go? You have to take somebody with a grain of salt. With Simka Yakubovich, you don't have to take things with a grain of salt. You need to take them. Uh, you need to take them with a salt lick. You know, you, you ever seen those things that they, you know they they have out in some of the. Uh, is it cattle ranchers who use salt licks? I forget. Anyway, they're huge, ginormous blocks of salt. Yeah, so whenever you're dealing with Simka Yakubovich, you've got to um, take it with a block of salt uh, because um, let's just say that he has a penchant for the um, uh, for the fantastical story that uh, doesn't hold up under scrutiny. But anyway, he, he, tell you what I'll do. I'll play for you the audio from the CNN news story on this, and, uh, and, and I think this will kind of help. Here we go. Way inside a Tel Aviv University safe sits a small and unremarkable wooden box. Its contents have sat in the university's anthropology department for years. Two small and rust-encrusted pieces of metal that until recently were a largely forgotten bit of laboratory detritus. Documentary filmmaker Simka Yakubovich says they are a hugely significant archaeological find. These could very well be two of the nails that were used in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, uh, keep this in mind. Um, how many nails uh, did it take to crucify Jesus? Answer, three. Now, um, <clears throat> just keep that in mind. It's a theory that Yakubovich posits in a soon-to-be-released film called The Nails of the Cross. In 1990, construction here in this now-Jerusalem park uncovered a 2,000-year-old underground tomb that some believed was the burial place of a man named Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest of Jerusalem, who tradition holds was a central figure in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus to the Among the finds in the tomb, 12 boxes two used to hold the bones of the dead and two iron nails. Yakubovich says that beyond a cursory mention in an archaeological report filed at the time of the find, the significance of the nails was ignored. You found the tomb 
of the man who's known in history for one thing and one thing only, that is sending Jesus to Pilate who crucifies him? You find two iron nails and you don't mention it to the world, you don't ask the question. Could they be the nails that crucified Jesus? Jewish tradition, Yakovovich maintains, holds that crucifixion nails held magic properties, explaining why the high priest might be buried with them. How does Jesus connect here? If you find in 2,000 years the tomb of Muhammad Ali, and there are two uh, boxing gloves in this tomb, you would think they're not his training gloves. They're the gloves that he, he won the heavyweight championship of the world. It wouldn't be a crazy thing to think that if a guy takes these particular gloves to his death, they might have some important significance. Modern analogies aside, it's a theory the archaeological establishment in Israel is not buying. They're awfully small nails. Svi Greenhut was the man who excavated the tomb and calls Yakubovich's theory imaginary. No chance that the nails that which, which are in the, in the laboratories of the Tel Aviv University are the nails which I have, been, I have found in the excavation of the Caiaphas tomb in 1990. So the guy who dug up Caiaphas, um, he says there's no chance um, that those are the nails used to crucify Jesus. <clears throat> Apparently, Simka is having a hard time finding good academic people to support him on his theory here. We continue. Are in the in the laboratories of the Tel Aviv University are the nails which I have been I have found in the excavation of the Caiaphas tomb in 1990. Yakovovich has courted archaeological controversy before. And action! In a 2007 film made with Hollywood director James Cameron, he suggested that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and buried along with her in a southern suburb of Jerusalem. He stands by both. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He uh, put out that wonderful theory that Jesus Christ was married to Mary Magdalene, and the two of them, well, they were buried outside of Jerusalem. Okay. Films and says academics need to reassess the existing scholarship. I think I've put together. Some of the scholars that you hired to help you in that hit piece uh, defected, uh, Simka. A compelling journalistically sound hypothesis. And now it's up to the scientists do the science. What they found Incredible or not, the, the film is likely Jewish only to tomb. add to the mystery surrounding the death of Jesus. Kevin Flower, CNN, Jerusalem. Okay, so there you have it. Um, that's the thing with uh, Simka Yakubovich, you know, you got to take it with a block of salt. Anyway, um, the uh, aerial, uh, aerial ray piece continues. During a press conference in Jerusalem, Simka held up the two corroded iron nails and said that these were the nails used to bind the hands of Christ to the cross 2,000 years ago. Some experts and scholars consider the claim false and more of a publicity stunt because he's using it to promote his new documentary. So anyway, why am I covering the story? Plain and simple. You've heard it all, Okay. Um, there is no more evidence to present to you. Um, so if you see on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, which is where his stuff usually ends up is on the Discovery Channel, you know, you don't need to set your DVR and go, ooh, I wonder if they found the nails of Jesus. You've heard all the evidence that there really is. is. And, uh, I mean, could it possibly be two of the three nails used to crucify Jesus? Sure, it falls within the realm of possibility, but... 
Um, if there was, if it was somebody credible bringing this forth, I might be a little bit more interested in it because it's Simka Yakabovich, uh, one of the arch enemies of Christianity, who still believes, despite his scholars defecting from him, that uh, Jesus Christ was married to Mary Magdalene and he discovered the lost tomb of Jesus. Um, yeah, I'm not so um, well, inclined to um, believe him, if you know what I mean. Moving along. Purpose, it keeps you going strong Like a car with a full tank of gas Everyone else has a purpose So what's mine? Oh look, here's a penny It's from the year I was born It's a sign I don't know how I know But I'm gonna find my purpose I don't know where I'm gonna look But I'm gonna find my purpose Gotta find out, don't wanna wait All right, that could mean only one thing. It's time for a Rick Warren update. And uh, as promised at the top of the program, um, uh, Rick Warren, in a recent interview he did with the superintendent of the Assemblies of God, uh, last name guy's last name Wood, um, he divulged where he got the idea for all of these different campaigns that he does. You know, the, the 40 Days of Purpose campaign, the 40 days of love, the 40 days of peace, the 40 day, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, Rick Warren actually, um, <clears throat> in the interview, explained where he got the idea from. Um, <laughs> you know what? I, I, before I play that, I should do this. Hang on. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinew nasal liquid spewment disorder. Steering wheel pounding, clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Oh man, this warning <laughs> could not be more needed today. Um, this this particular answer to the question, where did Rick Warren get the idea for all of these campaigns? Uh, this particular bit of knowledge could actually be uh, endanger you from suffering from frus frustrative brain explosion. Here, let me uh, let Rick Warren explain. And a number of years ago, we came out with what we call our campaigns. There's some people have heard of the 40 Days of Purpose campaign, but we've done a lot of them over the years at Saddleback. One was called uh, 50 Days of Faith, and one was called Millennial Members, one was called I Want to Grow, one was called 40 Days of, of Peace. And practically every year, we'll do this spiritual emphasis where we pick a subject and we'll focus on it for an intense period of time and we'll hear it on Sunday and we'll read about it during the week and we'll discuss it in a small group and we'll do projects and we'll memorize it. And somehow by doing all these reinforcements, I have found the spiritual growth just soars. So, okay, so the purpose is uh, soaring spiritual growth. Where'd you get it from, Rick? Here we go. You know, by, by, by doing these... Um, campaigns. I, I actually learned the idea of a campaign from the communist of all people. <laughs> from who? 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I, t- I warned you that you could be suffering from frustrative brain explosion from listening to this. Hang on a second here. Let's hear it again. Campaigns. I, I actually learned the idea of a campaign from the communist of all people. <laughs> Please tell us more. Years ago, there was a book written called Dedication and Leadership. It was written in the 50s by the head of the Communist Party of England who converted to Christ. He actually became a Catholic, and then he wrote this book on what the church could learn from the communist, not about doctrine, you know, we know our doctrine, but what were some of the tools that they used to help win converts to communism. And he wrote this book called Dedication and Leadership. It's still in print by uh, Notre Dame Press. It's not a very well-known book, but it's... Yeah, if you want to get it, you know, Notre Dame Press. Douglas Hyde, if you want to pastor, you want to pick it up. I actually first heard about it from Howard Hendricks. was the first person who recommended it. Howard Hendricks of Promise Keepers fame. So there you go. I mean, have you ever wondered where did Rick Warren get the idea for the 40 Days of Purpose campaign and all these little campaigns that he's campaigning for and that he claims is, well, the thing that has supercharged the spiritual growth there at Saddleback? Well, well, guess no more. You can now know that he got it from the Communist Party. I I, I need to go take a break now. Um, If you would like to... Um, yeah, boy, I, that is, I don't even know what to make to make of this. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose. Our two weapons are purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance. Our three weapons are purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record. Our four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. 
Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You want to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are? I I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven Inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do... Chief weapons are... Our chief weapons are... Um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and, okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now... How do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, Rick Warren learned his 40 days campaigns methodology from the Communist Party. <laughs> Isn't that great? Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there... You will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. You know, I got to tell you. You know, when if if you're using communist 
party ideas in your church ecclesiastical methods. I mean, kind of gives a whole new meaning to that uh, segment that we do here uh, on, on the Marty Python's Flying Circus Church, the Purpose Driven Inquisition. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like the uh, the Inquisitors should be speaking in a Russian accent. Anyway, so there you go. I just you know. <laughs> All right, our next uh, our next uh, item up for bids, if you will, here at uh, Fighting for the Faith is a, an op-ed piece written by uh, a gentleman by the name of Nasir Saeed, and uh, he's a guest uh, columnist uh, contributor there at um, at uh, the Christian Post website. And I want to read part of this. And like I said, if you have your Bible, go ahead now and flip on over to Acts chapter nineteen, verses eight through forty-one. Uh, unfortunately, this whole thing with the um, burning of the Qurans and all that kind of stuff, that story hit uh, during that week that we had our family tragedy. And so I've been wanting to weigh in on this, and I haven't weighed in on it yet, but I think it's worth going backwards and kind of pointing something out here. There's something very, very bad, very wrong, unchristian, and not the way we Christians are supposed to be dealing with uh, people in Islam with the, with the actions of Terry Jones. Uh, let me read this. A protest against the burning of a Quran by Terry Jones continue in Pakistan. Condemnation of his actions by President Barack Obama and the United Nations did not appease Muslim sentiments, particularly those of Pakistani Muslims, and emotions are running very high as their resentment towards the U.S. Uh, continues to grow. The reaction of Pakistani Muslims towards the Danish cartoons uh, Fitna and now Terry Jones and his Quran burning demonstrate just how easily agitated they can become if they feel the religion has not been given proper respect. Naturally, insulting cartoons and foolish acts like a Quran, uh, a burning a Quran, are incredibly hurtful to them. Muslims in Pakistan are a people who greatly revere their religion, the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad. These are things that they value more than their own lives. Indeed, Pakistani Muslims in general are not afraid to sacrifice their own lives for their religion, and in the same way, many would have no hang-ups about taking the life of anyone who insults the Quran or the Prophet Muhammad. Such a killing is not considered a crime by Muslims in Pakistan, but rather a religious duty, and the killer is treated as a hero. Malik Qadri, uh, the personal bodyguard who killed Punjab Governor Salman Tasir, is one such example. Rather than shame or regret over his actions, Qadri uh, boasted that he killed Tasir because of his support for change to the blasphemy laws. In many parts of Pakistan, there was nothing but adulation for him. Pakistan has blasphemy laws to prevent any kind of insult against Islam or the Prophet, and these days even talking about or suggesting a change in the laws is dangerous. The government has bowed down to pressure from Islamic groups in the parliament and abandoned any effort to change the blasphemy laws. After the murders of Salman Tasir and minorities ministers Shah Shahbaz Bakhti and with Sherry Reh. Uh, Rahman, having withdrawn her bill proposals ref uh, uh, reform of the blasphemy laws, it's going to be increasingly difficult for the Pakistani government and for campaigners to change the laws that are behind so much of the suffering of Christians. Terry Jones may not be aware of it, but his actions have done Christians no favor. Instead, he has put Christians even more in harm's way and will only add to the suffering they experience living in Muslim countries. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, 
what Terry Jones did is, is while well, it's not really in keeping with the Christian way of doing missions, if you would. Now, I, I, I'm going to pause right there uh, from Nasir's uh, op-ed, and I'm going to switch over to the Scriptures. If you ha- if you, like I said, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to uh, pick up uh, Paul's missionary work in the city of Ephesus, okay, starting at verse 8. And he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's Christianity, um, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him and reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, and uh, seven sons of, of a Jewish high priest by the name of Sceva, we're doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You can write into this confessing their sins. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so that the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail Mightily. Now, I'm going to pause right here. I'm going to read a little bit more of this, but I want to point something out here. The Apostle Paul did not breeze into town and start burning magical scrolls. That was not his, uh, his way of getting back at those people who were teaching falsely and, and teaching the magical arts and false religion and occultism and stuff like that. No, he, day after day after day, had a standing gig at the Hall of Tyrannus, which, according to archaeology, tells us it was basically a philosophical hall where people uh, discussed the uh, philosophical ideas and stuff like that. Paul took out the uh, you know, took out the Hall of Tyrannus during off hours, and daily was there proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins, proclaiming the gospel and preaching the word of the Lord and God, the Holy Spirit convicted people of their sin and their unbelief and brought them to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This then produced fruit in the new converts that led to many of those who were practicing the occult to confess their sin of divination and things of that, and they voluntarily burned their scrolls. Okay? If you really want to have an impact on Muslims, stop burning the Quran. 
Okay, that's not how we reach out to Muslims. We reach them with the scriptures and the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins and the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ in his vicarious death on the cross and victorious resurrection from the grave on the third day after he was crucified for our justification. You do that, and you know what you'll probably end up happening, see happening is that God the Holy Spirit miraculously converting Muslims and they abandoning the Quran and not wanting, having, not wanting to have anything else to do with it. You see, it's a bigger deal when it's a former Muslim or a former occultist who gives up their false belief and gets rid of those what they believe to the point of even burning it. That's the big deal, okay? So it wasn't that Paul went out attacking them by burning their scrolls. He preached Christ, and then they burned their scroll. Those people burned the scrolls for themselves, right? They didn't want to have anything else to do with the occult because they found the truth, or the truth found them. Now, this did not create a... Um, Let's just say this didn't create a safe situation for the Apostle Paul. Even though he did, this is the way he did it, this still left him open to persecution and nearly losing his life. Let me continue reading. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, about about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we earn our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods." And there is no danger not only and there is there is danger not only in this trade of ours that may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she and that and she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. So Demetrius, by the way, he he incited a riot there in Ephesus. And and Paul, it was a very, very dangerous situation. Okay? But imagine how things have would have gone for Paul. Go ahead. You, you, when you have an opportunity, read the balance of the chapter. Imagine how things would have gone for Paul if the way he was going about proclaiming the gospel was to take silver shrines of Artemis and smash him while he was there in the Hall of Tyrannus. Uh, they would have killed him flat out. Okay, he nearly lost his life for preaching the gospel here. I mean, it was not a, it was not a, uh, it was not uh, an easy situation. It wasn't a safe situation. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's far more power in proclaiming the word of God than burning Korans. There is no power in burning Korans. All that does is is make people defensive and and solidifies them in their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Preach Christ and Him crucified for our sins, and they will abandon the Koran. The same way that Paul preached Christ and Him crucified for our sins in Ephesus, and people abandoned the worship and the pilgrimages to Artemis. And as a result of it, there were, business got really bad. In fact, the Temple of Artemis, it's not there anymore. 
I mean, the, yeah, there's maybe one or two pillars left of the Temple of Artemis, and they're sitting in a swamp. You want to overthrow Allah? Preach Christ and him crucified. Don't burn Korans. That's not how you do it. Anyway, just my two cents worth. Um, Yeah, so this is something I, I, I had to weigh in on that. Anyway, Albert Muller has another op-ed piece, and uh, this one's entitled A Massive Shift Coming in What It Means to Be a Christian? Question mark. Dr. Muller writes, he says, uh, The edition of Time magazine, uh, Timed for Easter Week, features a cover story on the controversy over Rob Bell and his new book, Love Wins. Interestingly, the essay is written by none other than John Meacham, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author and former editor of Newsweek, Time's historic competitor. Meacham, who studied theology as an undergraduate at the University of, of the South, helpfully places Rob Bell in the larger context of modern theology as he offers basically sympathetic analysis. Meacham explains, quote, The standard Christian view of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus is summed up in the Gospel of John, which promises eternal life to whosoever believeth in him. Traditionally, the key is the acknowledgment that Jesus is the Son of God, who in the words of the ancient creed, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was made man in the evangelical ethos one either accepts this and goes to heaven or refuses and goes to hell. <clears throat> Bell, Meacham writes, begs to differ with this standard Christian view. He then relates that Rob Bell suggests that the redemptive work of Jesus may be universal, meaning that as his book's subtitle puts it, every person who ever lived could have a place in heaven, whatever that turns out to be, such a simple premise but with Easter at hand, this slim, lively book has ignited a new holy war in Christian circles and beyond. Well, holy war is an, is an exaggeration loved by the media, but Bell has obviously ignited a raging controversy uh, within evangelical circles. Meacham then traced something of the reaction to Bell's argument. When word of love wins reached the Internet, one conservative evangelical pastor, John Piper, tweeted, Farewell, Rob Bell, unilaterally attempting to evict Bell from the evangelical community. R. Albert Muller, Jr., president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says Bell's book is theologically disastrous. Any of us should be concerned when a matter of theological importance is played with a subversive in a subversive way. In North Carolina, a young pastor was fired by his church for endorsing the book. We, we covered that, by the way, here. He was not actually a pastor. He was a student. <clears throat> journeyman, if you would. Anyway, I continue. All of this is a matter of public record now, but what makes Meacham's analysis really interesting is what comes next, says Meacham. The traditionalist reaction is understandable, for Bell's arguments about heaven and hell raise doubts about the core of the evangelical worldview, changing the common understanding of salvation so much that Christianity becomes more of an ethical habit of mind than a faith based on divine revelation. Quote, when you adopt universalism and erase the distinction between the church and the world, says Moeller, then you don't need the church and you don't need Christ and you don't need the cross. This is the tragedy of non-judgmental mainline liberalism, and it's Bell's tragedy in this book, too. Now, this may mark the first time any major media outlet has underlined the substantial theological issues at stake. Meacham understands what Bell's proposal amounts to, quote, changing the common understanding of salvation so much that Christianity becomes more of an ethical habit of mind than a faith based on divine revelation. To his credit, Meacham also understands that Bell's arguments fit comfortably within the context of Protestant liberalism, quote, in the early 20th century, Harry Emerson Fosdick came to represent theological liberalism, 
arguing against the literal truth of the Bible and the existence of hell. It was time progressives argued for the faith to surrender its supernatural claims, he explains. Rob Bell, he suggests, is more at home with this expansive liberal tradition than he is with the old-time believers of Inherit the Wind. Meacham is right about this, of course. Readers may differ with his analysis of other aspects of this controversy, and in the end, John Meacham seems to admire Rob Bell, whom he describes as an odd combination of Billy Graham and Conan O'Brien. But he understands that the liberal tradition in theology is where Bell now finds his home. Finally, this may be the most telling portion of the article. Is Bell's Christianity less judgmental, more fluid, open to questioning the most ancient of assumptions on an exorbitable rise? I have long wondered if there is a massive shift coming in what it means to be a Christian. Bell says something new is in the air. Like Brian McLaren, who argues for a new kind of Christianity, Rob Bell now openly wonders if there is a massive shift coming in what it means to be a Christian. Something new is in the air, he says. Actually, arguments for universalism and the denial of hell are anything but new. The real question is now whether the church has sufficient biblical conviction to resist this doctrinal uh, seduction. Otherwise, it may well be that Rob Bell's massive shift is the shape of things to come. Yikes. Yeah, I think he's right. We've, um, yeah, this is the question. Does the church now have enough biblical conviction in order to withstand the assault against the very foundation and core doctrines of the Christian faith that have been launched by men like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, Tony Jones, and others? I wonder at times if we're capable of standing up against this because the way I see it, with the seeker-driven movement, pastors in mass for the past two decades have jettisoned sound biblical teaching and catechesis in favor of being relevant and putting meat in their seats. As a result of it, uh, Christianity is, is as shallow as the kiddie pool in your neighbor's backyard. Think about it. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we got two good Palm Sunday sermons that I'm going to be reviewing, one by Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington, and the other by William Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. You don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Fortress, 
be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We have launched into Holy Week. And I want to load up on some good sermons. At least today. (laughs) All right, here we go. Good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, one comes to us via Messiah Lutheran Church, Seattle, Washington. Pastor Ernie Lastman presiding. The name of the sermon, The Humility of Jesus. The second sermon comes to us via Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, California. Pastor William Swirla presiding in the name of his sermon, The Passion of Our Lord to Save You. Both of these homilies focus in on Christ, his passion, that means his suffering and death for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Talking about how he became humble and obedient to death, even death on the cross. Both of them really are focusing in on kind of that little known uh, uh, Palm Sunday text, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. It's the epistle reading. All right, so um, let me uh, kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is Ernie Lastman to begin our two sermons and his sermon, The Humility of Jesus. Here we go. Grace, mercy, and peace be from God, our Father, and our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon for this morning is based upon our second reading. It's on the back of your bulletin for further review. My fellow redeemed in Christ, humility. I'm almost afraid to preach about it. Really. Who wants to hear about humility? 
I'm afraid that in our culture, humility is not seen as something that is admirable, something that is good or desirable. As a general rule, humility is seen as a weakness and is even often associated with low self-esteem. As a matter of fact, humility is taught in another way in our culture, in an opposite way in our culture, because we are basically taught from the beginning we are born into this culture to look out for our own rights and to seek self-fulfillment and to be competitive. A real easy illustration is going to any average bookstore, and in almost every one of those bookstores you will find a very large section entitled self help. But have you ever noticed you won't find a corresponding section entitled, How to Help Your Neighbor? Much less will you find a section entitled, Humility. Since the essence of original sin is to be concerned about ourselves first and foremost, and to live a rather self-centered life, none of this really should surprise us, and this all makes perfect sense. But, we are Christians, and we follow Jesus Christ, and we have and we know a different way. Probably most of you are aware that the Bible often speaks about humility. For example, just two verses immediately preceding our text, this is what Paul says. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And of course, there is no greater example of humility, none whatsoever, than our own Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why this morning in our second reading, the great apostle Paul says that we are to learn from the humility of Jesus. And so as we do that, we will ask, what is it that we learn? Well, we, of course, we learn and we are reminded that Jesus was humble. Yes, we know that. But what was it that made him humble? In what way was he humble? Well, his humility is not to be found simply in his horrible suffering and death. Of course, his suffering and death were truly humili humiliating. How so? Well, in that our Lord Jesus was not very strong, was he? By worldly standards, he was not very impressive, was he? He was not independent. Rather, he was weak and despised and abused. And of course, we know that in the Roman society, death by crucifixion was reserved for the most despised and despicable and lowly in that society. And this is all true. Yet, this is not what made Jesus so humble. What made Jesus so humble was who he was and the choices that he made. A little basic theology. Remember who is Jesus? Jesus is God in human form. Really? Certainly didn't look like it, did it? God in human form, suffering and dying as he did? God in human form chooses to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Later on, God in human form would be spit upon? Slapped, made fun of, brutally beaten with a whip with 39 times, with bone chips and metals at the end of it. And finally, as God in human form, he would be crucified. 
But as I said, the humility of Jesus Christ is not simply in what happened to him. The humility of Jesus Christ consists in this. He let these things happen to him. That's the humility of Jesus Christ. As God in human form, he could have stopped any of that at any time that he chose. But he chose not to stop it. Just as Paul says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, made himself, made himself nothing. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To really understand the humility of Jesus Christ, I want you to put yourself in his place. You are Jesus. You are God in human form. You have, at any moment that you wish, all the power and all the glory of God at your disposal. And now it's up to you, and you alone, how you will use that power and that glory. How long would it take in that process of suffering before you would be tempted to tap in? to that power and glory that you had at your fingertips that you could use at any moment. Would it perhaps been at the beginning of his suffering already in the Garden of Gethsemane when that mob came with weapons and lanterns and all your disciples and friends left you? Would you be tempted already then to use that awesome power and glory? Or would you wait to use it when the soldiers were spitting on you and slapping you and making fun of you or had you made it that long, how deep into the 39 lashes would you have made it when your back was in the process of turning into a bloody mess? If you had been able to last that long, would you have been tempted to use that power and glory as the nails were being driven with your hands and feet? And had you made it that long, as you're hanging on the cross, you hear people standing around the cross, not sympathizing with you, but mocking you, making fun of you as you hang there in that pain and suffering and misery. Aha! Save yourself and come down from the cross. He saved others. He can't save himself. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Would you now use your power and your glorious God? Jesus didn't. That's his humility. He did not have to go through any of this. He did not deserve any of this. He was sinless. And as God in human form, he could have stopped at any time he wanted, but he didn't. And that's why you and I and the whole world has a Savior. For in that humiliation, in that suffering and death, God was punishing all of our sins and the sins of the whole world. And our debt to God has now been canceled. And so just as that horrible, wicked sinner Barabbas went free simply because Jesus took his place. So likewise, Jesus has taken our place and we are free. We are free from the guilt of our sin. We are forgiven unconditionally and completely. We are free from eternal damnation. We have eternal life and the wonderful hope of the resurrection and a new world to come. And we are even free from the power of sin as now we want to live for our gracious God 
It is only because of his humiliation, his refusal to use that awesome power and glory that he had, that we have a Savior, a Savior from sin and death. Now, I'm going to intrude on the sermon here, and the reason why is because not all of Ernie Lassman's sermon was able to be recorded safely. Part of it got corrupted, and so I'm going to read the remainder of Pastor Lastman's sermon. I know I didn't tell you that, but hey, you know, it's radio. We do what we got to do. The nice thing is is that Pastor Lastman writes his sermons out long form, so we know exactly what the rest of the sermon was that he preached. And so I'm going to continue from here. But Paul also reminds us that Jesus is also an example for us to follow. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, that's easier said than done. As I said, humility does not come naturally to us, nor is humility highly regarded in our society. But Jesus humbled himself not only to be our Savior, but he humbled himself to serve us, that we too might humble ourselves to serve others in love and even make sacrifices for them. This is not easy. It takes lots of practice, and there is no better place to begin than in our homes, with our family. Husbands and wives cannot be happy if both are not serving each other in humble love and service that includes making sacrifices. Marriages are not happy because one or both of the spouses is not humbly serving the other person. Parents learn humble service in their sacrifices that they make for their children, who don't always appreciate what their parents do for them. But children can learn about humble service by watching their parents and learning to contribute to the well-being of the family. Many opportunities for humble service are also given here in our congregation. And if we will but open our eyes and listen with our ears, we will have other opportunities to humbly serve others at work or school or in our neighborhood. But it's not easy. Sometimes we have resentments. At other times, we are lazy or concerned more about ourselves. That's why our relationship with Jesus is so important. For only as we trust in his humble service to us can we find both the will and the ability to also humble ourselves in service to others. If Jesus' humble service to us does not move us to do the same, nothing else will. What else do we learn from the humility of Jesus? God exalts those who humble themselves. He certainly did that to Jesus, as Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is exactly what we confess in the Creed. And the third day he rose again according to the, according to the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. The man, Jesus Christ, now always and fully uses his power and glory as God. Whatever you can say about God, you can say about the man, Jesus Christ. And so the same man who so humbled himself for our sakes now rules over all things. He watches over you and your life, and this is his exaltation. And even before Jesus died on the cross, he knew that he would be exalted in his resurrection, as the author of the Hebrews says, Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was able to humble himself, refrain from using his power and glory as God, because he knew 
that the Father would exalt him, and with his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and seat him at the right hand. And so it is with us. We can humble ourselves in service to others for two reasons. First, our Lord Jesus is watching over us. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will be with us and protect us and help us so we are free of being self-centered and selfish and we can follow our Lord Jesus in humble service to others. And second, when Jesus returns, he will also raise us from the dead to share in his glory, as Paul says in his letter to the Romans, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever we might suffer in humbly serving others cannot compare to the wonderful glory that we will all have at his return and when we are raised from the dead. In conclusion, in Jesus Christ, God humbled himself for us. In Jesus Christ, God died for us. He did this to save us from God's wrath and eternal damnation in hell. We did not deserve it, but he did it anyway. He put our needs ahead of his needs, and it is this love, this grace that moves us to also humbly serve others. This is what we learn from the humility of Jesus, and we don't have to look very far to find people to practice on. Husbands and wives, parents and children, at work, at school, at church, wherever humble service is called for. In the name of Jesus, amen. And now here's our second sermon for the day, the sermon entitled The Passion of Our Lord to Save You, preached by Pastor William Swirla, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, California. Here we go. Here again, this verse from Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday. As a kid growing up in the Lutheran Church, I remembered only Palm Sunday. It was kind of the fun Sunday before all the big Holy Week festivities began. Got to play with palms in church, and we learned in Sunday school how to fold them up into a cross or do something creative with them or try not to poke your sister in the eye. Uh, I remember having them taken away from me by my mother, you know, and sitting there in the pew, and that was the end of the Palms and the end of Palm Sunday. And not about with the uh, hymnal that preceded this hymnal, Palm Sunday morphed into something bigger, Passion Sunday. And it became a kind of a holy week compressed into one single service. So instead of just simply the Palm Sunday reading of the gospel, you heard the entire Passion narrative. It could have been even longer, uh, as the fine print edition in the service folder indicated. And to make it a bit creative and to tune your ears into the narrative, uh, the Passion is often set to music or chant, or in this case, a spoken choral reading. If you were to take the Sunday and summarize it in one word, it would be this word. Hosanna. Hoshiana in Hebrew. Save us now, Lord. That's what you shouted to the king as he rode into the city. That's how a king was greeted. Hoshiana. 
Save us, Lord. It was the shout of confidence in the king. And when that confidence is King Jesus, it is not a confidence misplaced. Jesus came to save. His name, Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation, embodies salvation. And he rode into Jerusalem that day in order to save. He came in humility to humble himself in obedient death, to be the suffering servant who came not to be served by others, but to serve, and to lay down his life as a ransom, to purchase and win humanity from its enslavement to sin, to death, to pay the ultimate price in obedience to God's law by taking the wages of our sin upon himself and to die. The palm-strewn road is the road of our Lord's humbling for our salvation. He came to buy us back. He came to win us. This is the road of our Lord's passion, his passion to save you. His passion for the joy that was set before him, the joy of saving you personally, the joy of raising you up from the death of your sins, the joy of bestowing life on the world, life on you, and reconciling all things to the Father. He endured the cross and he scorned its shame for the joy of your salvation. The road begins at the city gate of Jerusalem. A borrowed donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isaiah prophesied it centuries before. Scattered coats and palm branches pave the highway ahead of Jesus. Shouts of Hosanna greet him. Messianic expectation is so thick in the air you can cut it. Those shouts of Hosanna may have meant something a little bit different than save us from our sins and save us from death. They may very well have been a call to arms, a call to revolt, a call to jihad against Rome. Hosanna may very well have been that call to holy war, and there is truth in it. Jesus came to wage holy war, not against flesh and blood, but to win flesh and blood. Not against a group of people, but to rescue all of humanity from itself and from the deep corruption of sin that drives each one of us to our death to the grave, and were it not for Jesus, to hell itself. His holy war was against the spiritual forces of darkness that ruled this world, against the lie of the devil, against the devil himself and his works. And so he enters his holy city as a conquering king to be conquered, as a king riding in majesty to his death on a cross. His road leads through the city streets of Jerusalem, streets that were paved with the blood of the prophets and the martyrs. It was not fitting for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem, Jesus once quipped. That's why he came to Jerusalem, knowing that his disciples' hosanna 
would be turned into shouts of crucify him on the lips of religious leaders in the city. The road goes to the temple, the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement, the place of prayer. It was the place where God planted his foot upon the earth and where he met with his people. It was a place of grace and mercy, of undeserved kindness toward the sinner through the blood of the sacrifice. But religion had turned the temple into a place of transaction, a place of bargaining with God, a place of bribing God. Jesus reclaims the temple as his own, his father's place of prayer and forgiveness, and he casts out the money changers and the sacrifice sellers. And yet he says not one stone would be left on another, predicting the temple's demise and declaring that in three days he would raise the temple up again, not the building, his body, a new temple, a new way of God dwelling with his people, a new way of forgiveness. The road winds from the temple to a borrowed upper room in the Passover meal. His betrayer Judas is identified in fulfillment of the psalm that said, One who breaks bread with me will betray me. He takes the bread of the Passover, the hard, unleavened bread of affliction, the bread that was eaten in Israel, in, in Egypt, on the way to freedom. And he gives this bread to his disciples as his own sacrificial body, given into death. Take this, eat it, do this for my remembrance. He takes the cup after supper, and he gives it as his own blood, which would soon be poured out as the new covenant spoken of by Jeremiah, a covenant of forgiveness in which I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The road goes from the upper room to a garden, a scenic place, a tourist attraction today, the Mount of Olives, a place of prayer. And there Jesus agonizes in his own dark night, wrestling in prayer with the Father, seeking for another way, and yet being totally obedient to his Father's will. As his own disciples sleep, Jesus prays, Thy will be done on behalf of all of humanity. Thy will be done. And in his death on a cross, the Father's will is done. The eternal plan of salvation is accomplished. Your salvation is won. This is the Father's will that all would be saved in Jesus, that all would come to the knowledge of the truth who is Jesus. This is the Father's will that you would be rescued by the death of the Son and that you would live trusting so that even though you die, you would live in him. His thy will be done prayer ends with his arrest by an armed mob. He's betrayed with a disciple's kiss, a reminder that Christ is often betrayed by the insider, not the outsider, by those who call themselves disciples, by members of his own church. Just as he was denied by Peter, his most fiercely loyal disciple. Let him who stands take heed lest he too fall. No man is immune from these temptations, neither you nor me. 
There is a bit of Judas and a bit of Peter in each one of us. Jesus' road leads to the council, the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers. He is tried by religion, and religion finds him guilty. Guilty. Guilty of blasphemy against the name of God. Guilty for telling the truth about who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And yet that is precisely religion's indictment against him. And it would be blasphemy of the highest order were these things not true. There have been many religious leaders who have promised to show us the way. But there is only one who is the way. There have been many religious teachers who have promised to deliver truth. But there is only one who claims to be the truth. There have been many prophets who have promised life. But there is only one who is the life. There have been many claiming to represent God and to speak for God, but there is only one who ever dared to claim to be the Son of God in human flesh. Religion finds him guilty. The road leads to Pontius Pilate and the Roman government. Civil authority, God's left hand. You would have no authority except that which was given you from above. It takes a little detour to King Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, the counterfeit king who meets the true king, and there is only mockery and scorn. A curious friendship is formed that day, Herod and Pilate, bitter political enemies, now become friends in their mutual hatred of Jesus. As they say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Jesus is tried before the civil authority. The charge is treason, setting himself up to be a king. That's why the sign over his head. This is the king of the Jews. That's a crime. Punishable by crucifixion as a warning and as an example to anybody who would dare provoke an uprising against Caesar. Pilate is reluctant. He knows the principles of Roman justice. And yet these principles are forsaken in view of a mob that clamors for Jesus' crucifixion. How often, how often it happens that expediency trumps political principle and that good government gives way to mob rule? A terrorist named Barabbas, by the way, Barabbas means son of the father, is set free. (laughs) What irony. The counterfeit son of the father walks away a free man the true son of the father, goes to an innocent death. And that, my friends, is the happy exchange. Our sin, his righteousness. We are guilty as all hell. And he goes to our death in our place. The road winds through the streets of Jerusalem. A Passover pilgrim, Simon of Cyrene, is forced to carry Jesus' cross as the women stand on the side and wail and moan. And yet Jesus, ever compassionate, mourns for them. He knows the fate of Jerusalem. He knows the fate of the people. If they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? You and I know what they do when the wood is dry. We live in that age. Just look today and look into history. It's recorded there what men do with the dry wood. The road leads to the place of the skull, to Golgotha, and there are three crosses there. 
On his left and on his right are thieves. They are terrorists. They are insurrectionists. They are guilty. They represent the world for whom Jesus died. Those who believe in him, those who do not believe in him. He died for us all. They are you and they are me in our sin, our rebellion, our unbelief. He prays for those who inflict his wounds. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And he prays for us in the same way before the Father with those same wounds. Forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. The people on the road mock him. No more hosannas now. No more palm branches. No more save us. But now it's save yourself if you are the Christ. Ah, but were he to save himself, then he would not be the Christ. He pardons the dying thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. Sweet words of forgiveness. He speaks those words to you in the hour of your death too. Today you will be with me in paradise. The sun darkens, the earth shakes, the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And Jesus shouts, shouts his last humble words. This is not a sigh. This is a shout. This is not defeat. This is victory. They are the words of faith. He trusts his father to his death. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His life is in his father's hands, just as your life is in his father's hands. And this is how you may die too, thanks to Jesus. Not with a whimper, but with a shout. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The road leads to a new rock tomb, a rich man's tomb. The family tomb of Joseph of Arimathea who happens to be a member of the Sanhedrin, no less. He had not consented to Jesus' condemnation. He was a believer. God has his believers scattered all over the place. Joseph does the courageous thing, and he requests the body from Pilate. Otherwise, the body would have been just taken from the cross and disposed of in the garbage dump. Jesus is buried. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, said Isaiah. All of it, all that has been said can be summarized in this sentence. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And even that can be summarized in this one word, Hosanna. Save us, Lord. And he has. Amen. Great stuff pointing us to Christ as we dive headlong into Holy Week. As we ponder and meditate and consider the passion of our Lord to save us. Can't add anything else to that. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio 
course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. You can email me. If you'd like my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 